Um, and some of you are worried about the Christmas season and thinking, oh, we have to do this one more time. And I, I'll admit, oftentimes I am, uh, I, I'm waffling between the two. Often it's kind of this decision, am I dreading it or am I actually really looking forward to it? But I have to say, I do love so many of the things about Christmas. I love the fact that in one of the darkest periods of the year, we make it the warmest and the brightest. I love that in the, the, the cold winter nights, we get to come together as family, with friends, whoever it is, and celebrate and rejoice about what God has done. But for me growing up, the leading up to Christmas was always the hardest part. Right? It, was, it was the waiting to get there. It was all the preparation that happened, and that was, oh, it was so difficult for me to wait. See, for me, it was always growing up, I, I was looking forward to the presents, right? I, I was a little bit selfish. That's really what I wanted. I wanted to get to Christmas morning so I could open the presents. And I, I don't know what your family did or, you know, the, the routines or the traditions you have, but, but we always did lists, Right? So for all of our presents, we, we would write out a list of all the things we want. We'd give it to our parents, and then they would buy stuff from it. Now, we weren't ever guaranteed everything on that list. It was sort of, here's your, your wish list, and my parents might buy something from the list. They might not actually buy something from the list. Right? They might decide, actually, this is what you need, not all that other stuff. I remember when I was about 12, my parents gave me a, a cordless drill and a bit set. And as a 12-year-old, I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> to this day, I still have that. That is the most useful Christmas gift I've ever received. That was super helpful. I'm glad my parents did that. But it was always the waiting that was so difficult because I, I, I'd, I'd send in this list to my parents and then I'd wait and I'd never hear anything. Did they actually buy something from the list? Am I going to get this? This is what I've been looking for, but I don't really know. Is this what's going to come? And I'd have to wait. And so I, I was bad at that. So I'd always try and find my presence early and try and see, you know, did, did this make it? Am I going to get this? But it was the waiting that was so difficult for me. You know, as an adult, I, I don't care so much about the presence. That's not the issue. But I have to admit, waiting is still difficult. Learning to be patient is still quite challenging to, to wait for what is coming up, especially when you don't know exactly what's going to come. You don't know exactly what is all going on behind the scenes, and yet, really, that's what Advent is all about. Advent is a season of waiting, of preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus, and so this Christmas season, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to simply walk through the story of Christmas. We're going to take the book of Luke, and we're going to walk through the first two chapters over these next couple of weeks, and we want to see how does Luke tell us about the birth of Jesus, right? There's only two birth accounts in our Bible. The first is in Matthew, the second is in Luke, and so we're going to spend some time walking through Luke's account, and you've already heard the introductory passage this morning. And, and I think Luke begins in a very odd place, doesn't he? Right? Luke begins in a very bizarre moment because he doesn't start with Jesus. In fact, he doesn't even start with Mary or Joseph. He doesn't start with the wise men. He starts with this completely different couple and a different baby. And that's where we begin this story of Jesus. And so I want us to pay attention, why does Luke take us there? Why are we starting with, with this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth? 
But I think Luke is actually teaching us something about how God operates. Because here's the truth. None of us are going to have, either as a child or, or, or as an infant, none of us are going to have baby Jesus, right? In case you haven't noticed, your kids are not like Jesus, right? They, they are not perfect, and so that is not going to be your experience. But you are going to have to learn to wait. You are going to have to learn to go through periods where, where actually there's just simply silence from God. All of us have to learn how to be faithful in the midst of silence. And so this morning, that's what I want us to look at. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open back up. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And we're going to spend some time simply walking through this text and understanding, well, why does Luke begin here? What is he telling us about who God is and how he works in our lives? So, Luke begins, actually a few verses before what we read, right? Luke chapter 1, verse 1, begins with Luke telling us both why and how he wrote this account, right? He tells us, he goes out and he interviews eyewitnesses. He goes around and gets this account and collects all of this together to make an orderly account of, of what Jesus did in his life. And so he, want us, he wants us to make sure we know well and we can trust what has happened. So as he begins this story, like a good reporter, he tells us when these things are taking place. Right, right off the bat, verse 5, we learn that this is happening while Herod is king over Judah. Now this is, this is a man by the name of Herod the Great, we usually call him, and he was a ruler in Judah. In fact, if you still today go to Israel... You're going to see buildings that he built. They are still standing even today. He had a massive impact on that area. He was a well-known historical king in the area. And in fact, we know so much about him, we can even tell you that he reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus born during the reign of Herod? And the answer is yes. You're saying, wait a minute. But, but doesn't that mean that, that Jesus was born before 1 AD? And the answer is, yeah. Actually, he was. Most scholars would agree it's somewhere around 4 or 5 BC. I know it's kind of weird to think that Jesus was born four years before Christ, but nonetheless, that is what we have, right? So you can ask a medieval monk why that's the case. He came up with that whole numbering system. But regardless of, of numbers and dates, we know this is happening during Herod's reign. And as we are introduced to this scenario, we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are this older couple we're introduced to. We're told that they are from a, a priestly tribe. Zechariah is going to be serving in the temple. And we're told that they are both righteous and walk blamelessly before God. Now, it doesn't mean that they are sinless, right? Zechariah is clearly about to doubt what God tells him. It's not that they were perfect. It's that they were faithfully following after God. And the other thing that it means is that actually what we read in verse 7, that they have no children, is not because of their sin. Their inability to have children was not a result of them being sinful. Rather, they have actually been faithful to God all throughout their lives. 
And so just before we even go on any further, I, I want us to just pause here because Zechariah and Elizabeth give us a beautiful example of what it looks like to wait faithfully, right? As we um, are going through this, I want us to actually learn what it looks like to faithfully wait for God. And so the first thing that we learn here is that their inability is, uh, to have children is not a result of any particular sin. It's not that they had done something wrong and therefore God was punishing them. Actually, what we're meant to see here is that what a person has or does not have is not necessarily a reflection on their spiritual life. It's not because they had sinned that they didn't have this. In fact, God had a plan for it. They were being faithful to God even in the midst of not getting what they desperately wanted. I think that ought to teach us what it looks like to wait faithfully. In the midst of their disappointment, in their heartbreak, they aren't using that as an excuse to now walk away from God. Actually, it's helping them lean further and trust God more and more. I, I've often heard people say things like, well, you know what, I just, I just don't believe in God. I don't believe in God because once I, I prayed and, and nothing happened. If God was real, surely he would have given me this. Surely this wouldn't have happened in my life. I would have been spared from this experience. And hear me, I, I get that. I, I, I get that, that pain that, that comes with not hearing a response. I get what it feels like to wait for years and years hoping something would happen and only getting silence as an answer. Right? Many of you know my wife and I, we share the same struggle as Zachariah and Elizabeth. We know what it feels like to sit and wait and hope and hearing nothing back. I'd love to say, hey, it gets easier over time and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. We are gonna face this we're going to face this waiting and asking. And so the question is, what do we do then? What do we do when we don't actually hear that question? And I think Zachariah and Elizabeth are an amazing example of this. What's their response? I'm going to say it's twofold. The response is continue to pray and live faithfully. Continue to pray and live faithfully. They continue on in prayer where I think so often we just give up right away, right? We pray for something for a day, maybe even for a week, and we go on and we say, you know what? I guess the answer is no, and we just completely give up. Zechariah and Elizabeth continued on in prayer. Look at what the angel says. He says, your prayer has been heard. This wasn't a prayer they prayed one time in their life. They had probably been praying this for 30 or 40 years at this point. And even now, late in life, this is still the prayer Zechariah has before God. He has been faithfully waiting, persisting in prayer. How often do we give up so early? Take the easy way out or simply ignore what God calls us to after a short while. Look, it's been said before, our faith isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. Keep going. Keep on persisting in your faith. Keep praying to God and place your trust in him. Psalm 22 puts it so well. It says, oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I love that prayer. It's the prayer of someone who is feeling distant from God, who feels like he's crying out to God day and night and nothing is happening. He doesn't hear a response, yet in that moment he reminds himself, but God is still on his throne. But God is still faithful to his word, to his promises. He does not abandon his people. Even though it feels like it at times, God has not abandoned me. God saves and delivers his people, and so we continue on in prayer, day after day, week after week, and even year after year. And so as they are continuing in prayer, the other description we get is that they live faithfully before God. Zechariah and Elizabeth get this one exactly right. When we meet them, we find them actually serving, living after God. Zechariah is serving in the temple where God has called him to serve. We don't find a bitter old man. We find a faithful man who knows what it's like to trust God through difficulty, not just the good times. We find a man of faith. And what we learn is that God has actually been building this man through years and years, has been building up his faith for what would happen next. So here's what we learn. God is at work even in the silence. See, that's what we find in this text. We find actually God has been working this whole time. Look back with me at verse 8. You have this beautiful verse. It says, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, that probably sounds like the most boring part of this passage, right? You're thinking, okay, yes, a priest is in the temple. Big deal. But, but what we so often miss is actually what's going on in the background here. See, in Israel at this time, there's something like 18,000 priests, okay? There is a lot of them. There is way too many to be serving in the temple at one point, right? The temple's big. It's not quite that big. And so what would happen is they they split up all these different priests into divisions, and each division would go, and they would actually serve in the temple for two weeks at a time, and then you'd have to wait until your turn came all the way up again. And in each division, during those two weeks, what they would do is that someone would come each day and they would burn incense before God. They would take it into the holy place in the temple and they would burn this incense as an offering. And so what they would do to to determine who is going to do that, they would cast lots, essentially like rolling a die, right? You you roll a dice and you figure out, okay, you, you are going to go in today. So we need to realize that when we come to this, this is probably... This is most certainly the first and the only time Zechariah has ever been chosen to do this. Out of 18,000 different priests, it was his division that was now up, and he was chosen before God to go and burn this incense. This would be the closest he would ever come in the temple of God to his very presence. And here's what we're meant to see. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't a fluke. 
It wasn't by chance that he had ended up there. No, in fact, that was very clearly what God was arranging by his power. All throughout the Bible, we see God is meticulously sovereign over all of the details, even over the casting of lots. See, what we need to see here about waiting for God in the silence is that he is still at work. He is still doing things even when we don't see him. And so I think what we need, perhaps, is a change of our assumptions. See, we often make assumptions when we don't hear back from someone, right? If you ever sent an email to someone, you're asking them a question, you need a response back, and you get nothing, right? silence on the other end, and you're waiting, and you're going, okay, like, what is going on? Maybe they didn't get it, and you're starting to get a little bit annoyed. You're like, okay, what's taking them so long? It's been a few days. Come on, come on, let's go. And we assume, well, they they missed it. They ignored it, right? Went under the radar. And the truth is, we're humans. Those things can all happen to us. But occasionally, you hear back, and they finally respond, and they, they give you a full answer, like everything you had been looking for, and then about eight steps past what you were even thinking. And and they describe, here's what all the plan can look like, and you're thinking, whoa! Their silence was not passive. Actually, their silence was very active. They were working on this the whole time. And when they responded, suddenly everything was now laid out. See, I think that's how we're to understand when God is silent. God is never passively silent. God is never doing nothing in the silence. In fact, he is actually at work in all things. See, we actually even have a promise in our Bible about exactly that. Romans 8.28 is one of these really overused and sometimes abused verses in our Bibles, right? Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And see, here's the problem. So often, that verse gets thrown out just flippantly, like a a stop crying pat on the back. Look, all things are going to work out for good, so stop it. That's not how this verse is intended to be understood. Actually, when we do that, we miss out on the beautiful reality of what God has actually promised us. And that is he is working in all things, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand. God is at work in all things so that his perfect plan comes together. See, it should actually be a a genuine comfort and promise for us to hold on to. That even when it seems like my prayer is going nowhere, that God is still at work. We can actually place our trust in the fact that God is working all things out, every detail, for our good, for his glory. And so the call for us then is be consistent in prayer. Continue on, persevere, live faithfully before him and place our trust that he is actually working these things out. See, that's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Decades of waiting and silence from God, but God was not passive. He was not doing nothing. In fact, he was working all things together for his good plan. And so the second thing we see here in this passage, in this story, is God is answering prayers. God is actually answering prayers. 
Now, we could probably pause and say, you know what? God could have said no. God could have said no to this prayer. It might have been, it might have worked out in God's plan that they actually didn't have kids their entire lives. Plenty of couples fall in that category. My answer is God is still good. Because what we see here is that God is never doing just one thing. In fact, God is doing a lot and far more than we can imagine. So look back with me at our passage Zechariah goes into the temple, enters into the holy place, bringing this incense offering before God, and and instead of just seeing an empty room, suddenly there is an angel standing there, and Zechariah freaks out. He's frightened. He has no idea what to do at this point, and so verse 13 says, "But, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. See, Gabriel comes and he tells to Zechariah, you are going to have a son, you're going to name him John, and many people, many people are going to be glad, and they are going to rejoice at his coming. See, what we learn here is that this is not a promise just for Zechariah. In fact, actually, it's for, it's for the people who are outside the temple as well. Gabriel continues, verse 15. He says, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, this child that will be given to Zechariah and Elizabeth isn't just for them, it's for the entire nation. In fact, he will be dedicated to God right from his very birth. See, this language about not drinking is what's called or what's part of a Nazarite vow, right? A Nazarite vow is when you kind of say, I am going to dedicate myself to God for this particular task. For for a specific role, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow. I'm not going to drink anything. I won't cut my hair, all of that. But John was to do this from his very birth. His entire lifetime would be dedicated to God, and he would be to turn the people of Israel back to God. And the language here that Gabriel is using is very specific. He uses it for a reason. See, the last prophet that God had sent was 400 years ago. 400 years ago, God had sent the prophet Malachi, and he had given him a a promise for what was to come next. And so if you look at the very last two verses of the Old Testament, this is what it says. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, what what Gabriel here is announcing is not just a child for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's actually the fulfillment of what God had promised. 
It's the answer to hundreds and thousands of prayers that had been given over 400 years of silence of the people of Israel crying out, God, would you have mercy on us? Would you send us a Messiah? And into that, God has been working and preparing for the sending of a prophet to prepare the way for the Lord. This was an answer to the prayer that Zechariah had never expected. He had no idea what God had been planning, what he had been doing in the background. He was asking for something so small, and God had a far greater plan in place. So hear me. When God doesn't answer, don't be dismayed. Don't lose hope. Actually, God is probably doing something far greater than you're going to be able to imagine. I'm not saying that you're always going to get a nicer car. If you're praying for something and you hear nothing and you're thinking, well, that's great. I'm just going to get, you know, the next model up. It'll be great. Actually, God might answer that prayer and give you a new bus route and actually give you time in your daily commute to spend time in the Word, build your faith, share the gospel with people around you. See, actually, God might answer that in a far greater way than you might expect. You might be praying for a child, and God might actually give you many, many spiritual children to raise and to bless families around you in a way you had no idea you could ha that could happen. You might ask for a new house, and God might give you instead contentment at where you are. See, God doesn't always answer these, questions, or these requests in the way that we think, but God always is going to answer them better. Far better than what we need, God knows what he is doing. See, Luke 11 says of God, says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, God doesn't just give us what we ask for. Actually, he gives us something far better. He gives us his very Holy Spirit. God is a good father who blesses his children richly. Do not be discouraged when the blessings are different than what you might expect. For God is at work in doing more than we can know. So the challenge for us then is, do we believe it? Do we actually believe that God is able to answer our prayers? Do we actually believe he is going to, that he hears us, that he will be uh, working in our lives? See, here's where Zechariah stumbles for a moment, right? Zechariah has been praying for so long for a child, now when Gabriel shows up, he doubts. Verse 18, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. See, Zechariah looks at himself and says, I don't think it's going to happen. Right? God gives him this promise, and he looks at himself, and he says, I don't think it can happen. I mean, it's pretty amazing because it's not like God hasn't done exactly this before, right? In fact, if you remember back to the story of Abraham and Sarah, they're an old couple. God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child. And Sarah even laughs at God's promise. That's not going to happen. And you'd think that Zechariah, having learned that story, knows it off by heart, would come to that promise and rejoice, yet he still falls into that same trap. 
He looks at himself first. He looks at what he is able to accomplish and says, I don't think it can happen. Instead of looking at God and saying, is anything too hard for God? So Gabriel answers him. He says, because you have doubted, you will be unable to speak until your son is born. Right? There's an irony here as Gabriel is announcing this good news to Zechariah who is now going to be mute and unable to share what he has just heard and what is happening. In fact, that privilege will go to his wife, Elizabeth. She will be the one to announce the birth of their son. She will be the one to actually even name him when the time comes. So the call for us is then, would we actually trust God? Would we actually trust his promises, not looking at ourselves, what we are able to accomplish, but trust and say, God, nothing is too difficult for you. I will trust you with this. Would we pray faithfully, expecting that God will be at work? See, I think what had happened during those 400 years is that people had slipped into something of a routine, Right? They, they, they had their routines. This is what we do time after time. And it's always the same. They stopped expecting that God would actually be at work, that God would actually speak. One more routine to go through. We do this all the time. For us, I think that's what Christmas can often look like. Christmas is just another season that comes. The lights go up, the tree gets decorated, presents get bought and cookies are baked, another routine, another gathering, another friend group together, and how little do we expect that God will do? How often do we expect that nothing is gonna happen? Yet, yet this is how God enters into the story He has never been passive in the silence. He has been working all things together exactly as he had planned to bring about salvation to the end of the earth. Do we actually expect God to answer prayer? Are we going about our days in just mindless routine? See, God is faithful to answer prayers and to keep his promises. God is faithful to answer prayers and to keep his promises. And in this text, we get a promise. We get a promise of what is still coming up, that God is going to come to earth and we will dwell with him forever. So you look back at verse 16, something we may have missed. It says, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, John, will go before him, God. Actually, Gabriel is announcing that God is going to visit his people, that John is going to be preparing the way for the Lord their God, that Yahweh himself will come and dwell with his people. That's what Gabriel has been sent to declare. It was far more than just a child to a childless couple, but it was that God would now dwell with us. He was the coming of Jesus himself. And here's the thing. God was faithful to his promise. He sent Jesus to earth. He dwelt with us, and we have a promise. Jesus is coming again. James chapter 5 says... Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hear me, Jesus came and he is coming again. In fact, we are called to be a people prepared, just as John prepared the people of Israel for the coming of Jesus, so would we be prepared for Jesus coming again? Would we actually look forward to that time, placing our trust in God's promise and rejoicing for what he has done among us? I love how Elizabeth responds in this passage. Verse 24 it says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth hears this good news, and she believes it. She keeps herself hidden for five months, probably until it was visibly obvious that she was pregnant, and then she declares that God has been faithful to her and that God has taken away her reproach. We, we don't often talk like that. We don't, we don't use that kind of language. It's language of shame. She's saying, God has taken away my shame. We don't really live in an honor-shame kind of culture. I know sometimes it comes in. But what Elizabeth felt was that she was the outsider. She was cast out of all of these things. She was separated from everyone else. And now God has worked to bring her in. But the truth is God was not just going to deal with what has separated her from others, but what has separated her from God. Ultimately, this story is not about the coming of John the Baptist. It's not about Zechariah. It's not about Elizabeth. It is about the coming of Jesus, the one who bears our shame, who takes that in our place, who stands for us and says, I will take that on your behalf. It's about the one who comes to die in our place. Romans 10 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, this was the announcement that Gabriel came to bring. It wasn't just pointing out John the Baptist, and I think Elizabeth even knew that. It was pointing forward to the one who would fully and finally deal with the shame of our sin, who would deal with that separation between us and God, and who would actually come so that we might come to know God. The story had always been pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. And so, as we approach this Christmas season, as we come into this period of waiting and preparation for what comes next, would we respond as Elizabeth does? In trust and joy. Trusting that the promises of God are true. Trusting that when God promises to do something, he is faithful to accomplish it. That even when it's silent and even when it seems like God is far off, he is not. That God is not passive in the silence, but that he is at work in all things. 
But then can we rejoice for what God has done, for the one who has come, who has taken away our shame, for the one who came and dwelt among us as a baby boy in a manger, Humble and lowly, God shows his love for us in this. He sent Christ to us to die on the cross in our place. Can we rejoice about that this Christmas season? I know there's plenty to be excited about. There's plenty to enjoy and to, you know, have fun, enjoy the fellowship, enjoy the family, enjoy the lights and the food and all the other things. But can I say, would we take our joy in what doesn't end in January, but actually continues on? Can we find our joy in what is eternal and not what is so temporary to a few weeks at the end of the year? Psalm 30 says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Might this be our joy this Christmas season? Not of all the celebrations, not of all the lights and the decoration, those are all good. But let us take our joy in what is eternal, in what is eternally significant, in what the king in the manger has done for us, in our shame being taken away, in our sin being paid for. Let us wait for his coming in patience, knowing that God is at work, that he has heard our prayers and we trust him. Let us praise him for all that he has done. Let's pray together. Father, you have done so much. Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure, beyond anything that we could have expected, far beyond what we have deserved. Lord, you have heard our prayers. You have been at work. Lord, I I pray, would we be a people patiently waiting, trusting in you with everything in our lives. Lord, would we not grow impatient in this time, but rather would we look to you. Lord, open our eyes to what you are doing here in our lives and all around us. Lord, I pray, would our joy always be found in you. Might we rejoice fully and gladly because of what you have done. Oh, we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen.